0: My name is Mark Beattie, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. I'd like to highlight some of the content from the November edition of the journal. The first article I'd like to cover relates to catch-up growth and metabolic outcomes in adolescents born preterm. It's well known that the pattern of growth during early childhood is associated with markers of the metabolic syndrome in later life with the risk being greatest for low birth weight babies and those with in-utero growth restriction. The data in infants born preterm is less clear, with a number of potential confounding factors, including the fact that early growth failure is common in preterm infants, with usually later catch-up in the pre-immediate post-discharge period. In this issue, Embleton and colleagues report the weight gain, body composition, growth, and metabolic outcome of 153 children born preterm. That's a mean gestation of 31 weeks, mean birth weight of 1365 grams. They assess these children at age 11.5 years. Height and weight were similar to population averages and did not differ between infants when grouped according to the degree of catch-up in the immediate post-discharge period. That's up to 12 weeks. There were no significant associations between infant growth and metabolic outcome. In contrast, there were strong associations between more rapid childhood weight gain – that's after age one year – and subsequent body composition and metabolic outcome. Metabolic outcome being measured by blood pressure, fasting insulin, and insulin sensitivity. This is an interesting data set. The data set suggests that patterns of early growth in preterm infants are not strongly associated with adverse metabolic outcomes in early adolescence, although Excess weight gain during childhood, that is beyond infancy, is strongly associated with adverse metabolic outcomes in adolescence. The second article I'd like to cover relates to recent advances in the management of infants born less than 1,000 grams. In this issue, Barrington and colleagues review the many advances in the management of infants born less than 1,000 grams over the last 10 to 15 years. The primary drive to reduce mortality has been achieved with the emphasis now being on developing interventions to reduce morbidity, that's reduced infection, limiting necrotizing enterocolitis and retinopathy of prematurity, and the improvement in long-term outcomes, that's from the point of view of lung disease, growth and neurodevelopmental outcomes. It's interesting to reflect on the fact that in 2013 there were 3,446 registered live births, less than 1,000 grams in England and Wales. Not 0.5% of all live births. 27% died at less than 28 days. 31% died before their first birthday. And the cerebral palsy rate in that population is around 10%. In the review, the authors discuss recent advances that have improved the outcome or have the potential to do so, including the role of networks and pathways, delivery room management, respiratory management after the initial phase, nutrition, necrotizing enterocolitis, infection, retinopathy and family integrated care. There have been many advances. Increasing antenatal steroid use at the limits of viability, antenatal magnesium, delivery of care through networks with the smallest and most preterm infants being delivered in larger centres, are just some in the antenatal period. Delivery room issues discussed include delayed cord camping or cord milking, delivery room monitoring, reduced early intubation with the early use of nasal continuous positive airway pressure, and new methods of surfactant delivery. Many, many other topics are covered in this excellent update. It's highly relevant to clinicians in the field and also to the clinicians who manage these infants outside the neonatal period during later infancy, childhood and adolescence. This article is editor's choice this month. The third article I'd like to cover relates to comparing pre-prepared commercial infant feeding meals with home-cooked recipes. So that's an important and it's an interesting question. Most infants are fed on a combination of the two. In this issue, Carstos and colleagues compare the cost, nutritional content per 100 grams and food variety of commercial meals, that's 278, with published infant and young child home-cooked recipes, that's 408. Breakfast foods and savoury snacks are excluded. The sample was analysed as a whole and then by matched meals. Commercial feeds are significantly more expensive on average 68 pence per 100 grams compared to 33 pence per 100 grams for home cooked recipes. There was a wide variety of different content. Commercial meals had a greater vegetable variety score. Home cooked recipes were more energy dense. On average, 101 versus 67 kilocalories per 100 grams. This increase in energy density reflected a higher carbohydrate content, 9 versus 8.4 grams per 100 grams, a higher fat content, 4.4 versus 2.2 grams per 100 grams, and a higher protein content, 5.9 versus 2.9 grams per 100 grams. The majority of home-cooked recipes exceeded energy density and dietary fat recommendations. The majority of commercial meals met the energy density recommendations but often failed to meet the minimum 30% of energy from dietary fats. How to interpret this data in the clinical setting is complex. Although within each food group there is a huge variance, the differences are significant and important to consider particularly with the increasing emphasis on the impact of diet in infancy on the risk of obesity, but also strategies to impact on infants and young children with faltering growth. The fourth article I'd like to cover this month relates to hypertension. Is the prevalence of hypertension in overweight children estimated? It's a very interesting paper and it's worth going through the methodology. There's a high prevalence of hypertension in overweight and obese children, and the recommendation is to screen overweight children for hypertension in view of the later cardiovascular morbidity and mortality. In this issue, Wiericks and colleagues explored different methods for screening and diagnosing hypertension in order to explore the impact on prevalence. This was across 969 overweight and 438 non-overweight children with a median age of 11 years. Hypertension was defined as greater than the 95th percentile. Three different screening methods were used, using the first blood pressure measurement, the mean of two measurements, and the lowest of three measurements on different occasions. Based on the first measurement alone, 33% of overweight and 21% of non-overweight had hypertension. Based on the mean of two measures, this fell to 28% and 16%. And based on the lowest of three consecutive measures, to 12 and 5%. If the three measures were made on a second occasion, this fell to 4% and less than 1%. It's really interesting to reflect on that data. In essence, the prevalence of hypertension is dependent on the definition used, the measurement strategy, and the interpretation of results. The authors rightly conclude that this data set and others suggest the prevalence of hypertension in overweight and obesity cited in the literature may be an overestimate. This is discussed further in the excellent accompanying editorial are we measuring blood pressure correctly in children, particularly obesity? The final article I'd like to mention this month relates to integrated care. Integrated care is about joining things up in order to meet health needs and in ways that make sense to children and their families. In essence, this means using the available resource across the network of PATCH to best deliver care with success requiring a strong drive to improve children's health services and systems research. In this issue, Ingrid Wolf and colleagues discuss the background, practicalities, what needs to change and making it happen. These are important issues and the article is essential reading for all who want to see children's services continue to develop and deliver better outcomes for children and their families. My name is Mark Beattie. I'm Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Please refer to the journal website for the full papers. Thanks for listening.